1: Presenting a bold new adventure into Lovecraftian horror and black comedy. The Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program's acclaimed second series, The Terrible Secret of Lot X.
0: This is startling and strange, but darling, we might be onto something here. This is why we came to Arkham, after all. The Necronomicon. Whatever your intent with this book, you will find more danger than answers. In this program, our cast actually lives the terror. I. The air gives way to the crushing depths. You're drowning. You're drowning in a sea of yellow. It's an improvised audio
1: drama that uses Chaosium's Call of Cthulhu role-playing game and the wits of our players. These poor souls never know what's going to crawl out of the darkness. Just search for the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program or unlock all our secrets at CthulhuMystery.com. Consequence
0: Podcast Network. Welcome back to Filmography, a Consequence Podcast Network production. I'm Dominic Suzanne Mayer. I'm the film editor at Consequence of Sound, and I'm also the host of this particular podcast program. And with that, I'd like to
2: introduce my guests for our May mini-sode. Uh, this is Mike Vanderbilt of Daily Grindhouse. This is Michael Rothman, Editor-in-Chief of Consequences
0: Sound. Thank you again for joining me, gentlemen. Regular listeners of the show will remember that this particular trio worked together on the filmography John Carpenter season. But today, we're actually... Well, actually, it's not as much a jump from Carpenter yeah. <laughs> at all. Because now that I'm thinking about it, we're here today to talk about Ridley Scott's 1979 sci-fi classic Alien in honor of its 40th anniversary. But before we jump into that, I'd like to remind everybody listening at home that you can find us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on wherever else you find your fine podcast content. You can leave us a review in those places. You can share with a friend. We dearly appreciate any and all help that you can give. We'd also like to thank Sadie and the Stark, as always, for their song Apocalypse, the theme song of this series. You can check out more of their recordings at SoundCloud.com slash Sadie and the Stark. But yeah, we're talking Alien. We're talking one of the all-time great science fiction films. We're talking a movie that... It arguably is as influential on modern filmmaking, not just modern genre filmmaking, but modern filmmaking at large as any later 20th century work. And that's kind of where I want to start with you two. I'll pose the question, what do you think has led to the endurance of Aliens legacy after all these years?
2: Well, I think it's because it's almost like a genre unto itself. I mean, what's so great about Alien is that it commingled together all of the old school science fiction films and novels and pulpy comics into this really postmodern smorgasbord that is in itself pretty timeless. I mean, they're they're really doesn't need to be it doesn't really need to be improved upon and as we've seen in the last few decades so many movies have tried to improve upon it but really all it becomes is just a facelift on the face hugger so uh you know nice little uh, <laughs> pun there so but i think i think that's really the appeal for me is that i mean i i just i see alien as a genre unto itself i mean just think of all the imitators that have, have come in the wake but i mean
1: i i like it i mean i think it's a beautiful film I I was never one for like uh, outdoorsy kind of thing. I always thought you know concrete and steel yeah and was cool and Alien has that like I mean I and it's a horror movie. Mm-hmm. I mean we're talking about it in terms of sci-fi, but at its core, it is it is a horror film. It's a, it's a monster in a house movie.
0: Well, that's a crucial point because I mean for all of the genre reinvention that came, especially in the look of the film, which we'll get to before long, I'm sure. Alien is also very intrinsically this... Predator chasing prey movie because it's not I, I wouldn't even go as far as calling it a cat and mouse movie because alien one of the things I really loved upon my most recent rewatch of it was just the realization that it has the cadence of what Roger Ebert used to call the dead teenager movie mm-hmm. the second you see the face hugger you know every single one of these people is fucking dead
2: <laughs> but here's the difference between say you know a teen slasher and this movie is that and this is something that actually Ebert gets in his review that I really love is that the average age of this movie is like, what, 42, 43? <laughs> it's like watching just average Joes, like watching Americans, watching blue collar Americans. That, Harry uh, Dean Stanton's actually only 23 in that movie. He, just, oh, really? No, <laughs> yeah, right. That's, makes, just how yeah, Harry, that's just how Harry Dean Stanton looks. only, you know, what, 55 and the <laughs> twin picks their turn. Uh, but no, I, and that's what I've always really loved about this movie is that it reminds me of just like a bunch of, like, you know, blue collar truck drivers who got f- fucked on a job that have just have to come together. And there's something, again, I, I say the word timeless, but I really do mean that. I think that that's what makes this movie just so palpable and so tangible. And, and it appeals also to the environment around them. I mean, Ridley Scott was insanely influenced by 2001 A Space Odyssey, which was entrenched in research of what the data and the scientific research and the scientific accomplishments would be in 10, 15, 30 years from now. So a lot of the technology looks timeless in the sense because... It's what could have been for a lot of the spaceships. It has that sort of wear and tear, and and there's a reality. You know, there's a reality to it. I think I read in some interview recently about the movie because it's obviously it's the 40th anniversary, so everyone's talking about it. But the buttons look like they all have functionality to it. There's not just some sort of superfluous notion to any of it, and that's what I think really is affecting too.
1: And it's, I mean, obviously comes in the wake of Star Wars, which I mean, Mm -hmm. not to get too deep into it, but it did bring the. Lived in universe that you didn't see in sci fi movies before yeah. that. And Alien kind of even makes it grimier. And as you said, touches upon that blue collarness of it. Like you never really saw that before no. in movies. It was always a team of scientists. And I think it's
0: really interesting, too, because you never saw it before in genre like this necessarily, but you were seeing this all through 1970s American filmmaking. This is the era of your Smokies and the Bandit, Mm -hmm. your Cannonball Runs, these films where the heroes are these rough hewn shit kicker working class
2: types through literature too I mean like even in most of stephen king's works like and not to, you know plug in the old uh, main <laughs> bard, but he he all always tries to strive to kind of get that sort of average joe american and and yeah i mean even like with with regards to just where we were politically as a society with you know the 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 gas shortage and just you know the 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 common man having to kind of triumph over. The, the, the big old government, you know, Vietnam, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of that sort of runoff that comes into this movie for sure. Sorry to cut you off. I didn't finish. <laughs> oh, no. But I
0: just I think it's a really interesting facet of the film. And one of the things that's really enduring about it, because, again, Mike, to your point, you don't see these characters in, I mean, sometimes in horror, but even then it's less frequent and then even less frequent in sci-fi beyond that. And then you also have these characters being treated as substantially intelligent, which is something else you don't always get in genre movies, especially line them up and mow them down genre movies of this nature. Alien really, really respects and trusts the skill and the intelligence of everyone on the ship, which makes it all the more horrifying when they're getting torn apart like it's nothing.
2: And there's something really powerful in the way that they earn that sort of trust and character within, what, 12? 20 seconds of this movie. I mean, how many times have they tried to create an ensemble like this, and they just have to lean on tropes and stereotypes that become so obvious? Whereas you just watch the naturalism of them interacting over breakfast, and you're like, okay, these people have seen some shit, and they can deal with shit. And that's such a I I, I've thought about that particular scene for so long because I can't tell if it's a power of screenwriting or if it's a power of direction or both. Uh, but it's executed perfectly.
1: And I do wonder who wrote that. Because, I mean, Dan O'Bannon is credited with the the, the screenplay, but it was uh, Walter Hill mm-hmm. and uh, another gentleman whose name's escaping me right now. Uh, well, Dan I'm,
2: Gilder? Yes, yes. Yes. And I know that uh, Bannon p- largely left the characters just kind of, like, amorphous. So you could yes. just do whatever you wanted. Because Walter
1: Hill was the one who said, well, let's make Ripley
0: a woman. Yeah. Well, there's – and, I mean, there's some interesting drama there because you had Dan O'Bannon and also Ronald Shusett who has a story credit and for all intents and purposes co-wrote the initial screenplay with O'Bannon. Which I believe was called
1: Starbeast. Yeah. Which (laughs) – I love that in an alternate timeline, Alien came out under, you know, New World Pictures from Roger Corman. It was called Star Beast. And it was basically like all the Roger Corman alien exploitation movies that came out afterwards.
2: (laughs) Which then if that happens, then maybe we get a sequel still with Cameron. That's <laughs> Star Beasts and then Star
0: Beast Cubed uh. <laughs> I, I mean, if we're having a conversational legacy, the impact of Alien having been titled Star Beast is probably <laughs> incalculable here. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, um, as noted, o- O'Bannon and Shusett had the initial story credits, producers got involved later in the process. Um, but I also think it does, Mike, to your point, get... I, I realize I'm saying Mike, to your point, and it's really confusing for everyone at home. Sorry about that. <laughs> you
2: could call me Rothman, as in Ripley Rothman.
0: No. Just stop. Get out of the studio. But no, um, I, I, I just... I, there's something about, especially the kind of humor... That finds its way into even some of the most grotesque things in the film that I feel is very strongly from O'Bannon in particular. And then, and actually, that's a good way to get into bringing up Dark Star <laughs> and the aforementioned John Carpenter reference because O'Bannon had a hand in Carpenter's student project and first feature film. You can go back and listen on our episode about that, and I recommend you do because that movie rules hard. But it also set the template for a kind of existential gallows comedy that that movie's immersed in, and that Alien treats as sort of window dressing to the central horrors of the film, but is still another really laudable aspect, especially since I'd argue where James Cameron would take Aliens a few years later, leans a lot harder into that
1: still. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think uh, the humor it adds, as we discussed, the working classness of the whole mm-hmm. thing. And you discussed like the development of characters like we've all worked jobs like we've all sat around that breakfast table that lunch table before and it as you said it just develops the characters and it they don't exist in a vacuum where it's only a horror movie they as you said they have had lives outside of this and they know each other and they've seen some shit but they they're friends
2: yeah and one of one of the more powerful elements of that is also something that kind of Ties back to Star Wars, or at least what Star Wars represented or how it existed at this point in time, which is you know only two years later, nineteen seventy nine you know we're still a year removed away from Empire Strikes Back. We have Splinter in the Ion's eye. And There's a lot of fan fiction and theories and Im- imagination that's being welded from this lived in universe that George Lucas created. And I think that what's great about Scott's vision, in Alien is that you do get that sort of, that sort of world building and like to the humor of the characters, like you could tell that they've had prior adventures to this, that they might've had like, you know, fun adventures, you know, before that, you know, didn't involve xenomorphs that, you know, have, you know, acid curdling blood. But, and that's kind of one of the reasons why you inevitably do care for each and every one of them as they're kind of checked off one by one. And also why ostensibly a lot of the, the imitators don't, traditionally work because you don't have that sort of built-in love and respect for, A, that world and those characters.
1: And that's what helps. I mean, Alien, upon a recent rewatch for me, I was it really takes its time it to get going. Mm-hmm. And I wonder myself, would I have, liked I mean, I saw it when I was probably 12, like, and I dug it because I knew it was coming. But if I had seen it in 79, would I have just been, would have been bored by that first half. But I don't think I would have. And it goes, it's a testament to the characters. You do get to know them. And also, I mean, the fact that it's also visually impressive is what kind of keeps you enthralled in the whole thing.
2: I, I think it's because it's, the title of this movie is so genius because I think there's one of the creators behind the scenes put it, It works as both a noun and an adjective, and I think that also works as the experience because everything that you're seeing here, you have the familiar characters who are being sucked into something that's just a beautiful nightmare, and that is what's so—there's a tangibility to the intangibleness of it all, and that's just very haunting, and even as a young kid, I think it doesn't matter how silent and how tranquil and how meditative it can be. It's just so mystifying, and you're sucked into it.
0: And there's a kind of horror in this internal idea that this is just the natural next phase of Mm -hmm. progress, biological progress, whatever you want to call it. Um, One movie from last year that I love a great deal and I think has a fair amount of Aliens' DNA in it is Annihilation, Alex Garland's film. And that very much plays with a similar half-lucid dream logic where... You're immersed in this world by way of being unmoored from anything human and familiar more and more and more as the film progresses. Mm-hmm. One of the beats that really cuts me to the bone every time I see this is in the dinner table sequence, just before the face hugger begins to emerge. Parker looks at poor doomed Kane choking and like with a half smirk goes, Hey, the food wasn't that bad. Yeah. It's one of those things because you have this warm human moment as everything is about to be completely robbed of its humanity. Um,
2: and it's such a, a creepy juxtaposition because you, the viewer know that something's wrong and you, it doesn't matter how many times I've watched this movie. It's still just such a defective and jarring sequence that you're just like, God, I can't believe they really went there and did this and came up with this idea. It's just so, um, you you always kind of hope that it's it's not, everything's going to be fine. They're going to finish. They're going to get back into the pods and they're just going to go home. Yeah. Which is such a great element of storytelling because you know, the, the, the predictability of it all could just have been so even, even after even 40 years later, uh, could have just become so untethered to the actual um, mysticism of the film. But the fact that it still is so hard hitting and so punching, I think it does reflect on what you're saying, Dom, is that the beats beforehand, you know, th- there's a comforting notion that, that they pierce through immediately. And it's, and it's, it's not so slight as you'd think, like it is elevated to have, you know, the, the, it's you know it's it's very um, it's drawn out a little bit.
0: Yeah, know? because th- those especially those opening minutes that just let you look walk around the ship at length. It's very very reminiscent of two thousand one totally. in that respect. But it's obviously uh, well, and, and you
1: talk about like the set design and everything. But there's a weird there's an ugliness to yes. Alien. It, but I, it was what I really like about it. Mm -hmm. Well, and I really like that idea you brought up
0: of, like, the beauty of very cold architecture, like, the way that some people think brutalism can be really aesthetically appealing. And there's something kind of brutalist about the design of the ship in particular. (laughs) It's very just... Flat compartments, cleanly drawn lines. I mean, again, this is 2001's influence and a lot of, you know, a lot of future speculative science fiction of the mid-century for that
1: matter. Who was the big guy, Mobius? It reminds me a lot of his his stuff. I, I don't know if he worked on it, though.
2: Not, if he I think worked it was, on Alien, because I, I
1: Geiger did the Alien, but I don't know if he did any of the sets.
2: Yeah, I think it was primarily you know the runoff from Jodorowsky's Dune.
0: Um, yeah, that that some of it was yeah, also the DNA the DNA arm of Jodorowsky's Dune movie he didn't make as long because among other things, that's what
1: led H R Geiger to this particular yeah. project. Uh, there's there's another alternate timeline where
2: Jodorowsky's Dune did get made, and can, it's a very weird world. <laughs> but no, but you are right though. Mobius did work on it. Um, he contributed to story storyboards and concept designs. So yeah. You have these avant garde, dark and disturbing artists coming in and basically just um, almost like a lesion over you know Scott's insistence on having these sort of Kubrickian spaceship designs. Um, which honestly, if you go back to Jodorowsky's Dune, there's a lot of Kubrick notions in that too, in um, a lot of what he intended for that movie. So there is this great marriage of what has already been. I think I would still even say after a Star Wars at that point, the best science fiction film was 2001 at this time, even then. And like to so them to kind of model themselves off of that and kind of bring in the horror element of like, well, here's what would happen if it wasn't just Hal on the ship. Well, this is also, also.
0: it it merits mentioning, it's not by any stretch the most gruesome film of the 70s by a long shot, but Alien is coming at the end of a decade where violence in film in particular had been really pushed to the forefront. Again, a lot of that is post-Vietnam reckoning on the part of the country and around the world. And I think Alien really plays to that exact sense of... An ideal that might be hyper-futuristic, that might be confusing to us, but still has this human element. And then what happens when you just savagely violate the human aspect?
2: Yeah, I mean, they, it was described as uh, at one point as like Texas Chainsaw Massacre of science fiction, which I think is a little over the top. But I, I get where it's coming from in that there's this inescapable nature of your own body and mind. You know that you're going to be, you know, losing your sense of self, whether it's your limbs or um, your DNA. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as they, as the, we see, what or happens.
0: even the way that when you find out eventually near the end of the film that Ash is an android, mm-hmm. yeah. there's this sense of being removed from even who you knew these other people to yeah. be up to that point.
2: Yeah, and as we see later on in the series. Um, uh, what you know? What is what exactly is identity at that point when they start getting into <laughs> clones? Um, <laughs> we don't have to jump ahead to that one though. Um, but I, but one of the things that I that I was kind of chewing on with this original one versus the sequels because I'm a huge fan of um, Alien Three. In fact, that's my second favorite, if not almost one of my favorites in the film I like franchise. 3 I, is, I, I like Alien 3 it.
1: as well. Uh even when I saw it uh when I went we to yeah. see it in 92 I was like yeah it was fine it was good yeah. you know and yes it has its issues I guess but overall it's pretty it's does but but good what is any of the other I mean not as good as the first one. Well, it's yeah, good. It's, it's good. good.
2: But what I love about it is that it goes back to its kind of dark and disturbing roots that Scott set here. It has but a distinct look. It has a distinct look, but what what I really was thinking on was that like every one of the sequels with the exception of maybe it's, you know, Alien versus uh, Predator franchise, there's a thematic value to it, you know? And I was trying to think what was the real thematic value of Alien, you know? I mean, you can kind of take away uh, imagery of and themes of AIDS and 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 abortion with Alien Three. There's you know the post Vietnam uh, PTSD that comes from a lot of the soldiers and what they're dealing with and aliens with Cameron. Um, not to mention uh, everything that that he you know he wields into Ripley's character design with mother and maternalism and. But what is it about Alien for you guys that you, that you get out of this? Like, what, what what do you think are like some of the the core things that you that grab the, from the it? The up?
1: corporations are going to mm-hmm. fuck over the little guy. I mean, that, that's yeah. explicitly stated yeah. in the movie for all intents and purposes. Which is so
2: funny because the Weyland Yutani is only seen but not said. Which is so which is so. Yeah,
1: funny I, I, I always thought that it was just known as it's just known as the company. Only yeah. hearing to be referred to as a company, and yeah. I don't even think. They mentioned it being Wayland Utah. I don't even think they mentioned There's it in something Aliens. there's something in the
0: background that alludes to it. It yes, is in the Ali- logo is there. And yeah. it is in Aliens where they firm up the camp yeah. the company name that would become recurrent through the rest of the movies. But I mean, I think like if we're talking thematics here, the the plight of the working man is yeah. very much one. But I think another two is very much just and this is totally a Geiger notion of physical <laughs> design, but The decimation of the human body. So, I mean, so Cronenbergian was not entirely a household buzzword at this point, but there's a very much a repulsive body horror facet to this film on both sides because one of the things I love most about the xenomorph is that it's always dripping. Mm -hmm. It's always damp and glistening. And I mean, there's, there's, there's all kinds
1: of interpretation to be drawn. One of my favorite elements of the original alien design that I've seen people post pictures of it and not that have seen a movie a million times and never realized it, that there's a human skull. Yes. Inside the uh, the xenomorph's head.
2: Well, you forget that, like that the xenomorph. That's not the regular alien design. It's only because it takes on the human element. You know that it has that xenomorph thing, which is why it's you know, it's so funny in years later when you have all these sequels and oh, you're just like, oh, the, the xenomorphs dog. are there hanging out. And it's like, well, no, they, they. the only reason why it took on that appearance is because, you know, it went through Brent. It went through, the, you know, Arcane. And it had that sort of, you know, human body that it took from it, um, which is another really kind of creepy thing. But to go back on the theme, though, so based on the sequels would seem to come from a more personal place based on specifically with character design, I would say. This one seems to be more like aesthetic visual i mean more like like a you know broader you know thematic level like it doesn't really deal so much with the characters at hand then
0: i mean ellen ripley ends up a lot more developed in aliens as a character than she does here arguably but she's all presence Mm -hmm. and in a film as brutishly paced as this one it works because To your earlier point, you know, this movie takes a while to get moving, but shit, once that thing comes out of John Hurt's stomach, we are off to the races relentlessly.
1: Which I think makes it, uh, uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, almost like a fair comparison, because that one takes its time and then, like, just... Takes off, run. It
2: really does, because once I mean they, they, they we sit around with Franklin, being like, "Well, I'm having so much fun, I don't know what I'm supposed to do." And it's like for like what, like thirty minutes before yeah. all of a sudden it's like, "Ding, ding, ding, ding." And like, it makes,
1: always makes me wonder is like maybe sometimes as a critic, if I'm sometimes harsh on modern films for not giving me enough right up front, like yeah. if it's, uh, "Oh, this is boring. It's, take, it's uh It should have been ninety minutes."
2: Like, yeah, well, oh, no, Alien uh, takes its time and it pays off, but. It really does. And, and and even when you're in the last act and you, when you first watch this movie, you know that Ripley is going to make it, right? Like, which isn't, it wasn't the original intention, but you know that she's going to make it, but yet there's still some sort of tension with her in this i think it's like 15 20 minutes that she's alone like it just she just has to carry on because i think well it, because it, i think essentially
0: there's that i mean as scott has called it himself the fourth act of yes. the film which is that sequence at the end on the escape pod yeah and there's there is that horror to watching the movie end and then the movie isn't over. Yeah. I
1: still get I still
0: get
2: tricked by that too. I'm yeah.
1: like, wait a minute, what happened to the, Oh yeah, no no, no, it, it comes out. What happened at the airlock part? Oh no, it comes after
2: that. That as a kid, that sequence where she's just staring at the pipes and it moves was by far the most horrifying image for me well, but
0: especially as a kid that 's yeah. your worst fucking nightmare when you 're staring at something and telling yourself in your yep. head, No, this is just me it 's yeah. just in my head,
2: and then it 's not yeah that 's the worst thing that can happen exactly like when I would go to bed we used to, I used to have this like shelving, and underneath the shelving there was this like bay of um bag of like dolls and toys that I had that would just be right under the shelving. And I remember going to bed that night after watching Alien for the first time and thinking that something was on that shelving, like underneath it, on that bag. And just, oh, it just still stays (laughs) with me. But, yeah, the the insect-like nature of the design and how it kind of melds in with the pipes goes right into your, you know, discussion, uh, Mike, about um, that. It goes right into, you you know, what you discussed before, Mike, that it is, like, the, there is like the architecture and the the monster design are almost like one and and the same.
1: Well, again, there's a weird thing like how the it is Geiger stuff is very organic on one level, but it's more mechanical mm-hmm. than that. Like the alien blends in with the sh- like. The ship, because it is kind of more of it looks mechanical in yeah. its design.
0: Well, the re- part of the repulsion, then it, I would argue, is that it's just human enough for again the violation of humanity it represents yeah. to be all the more unsettling. It you know it has two legs. It, it it roughly is anthropomorphic in at least its stance and in how it moves,
2: and yet it's this bastardization of anything human. And it's also something really weird about the the choices of design for a lot of just everything in the movie. Like, there's a lot of like tubing and, you know, like the, the glass marbles that are inside. Um, uh, oh, cash, inside. yeah. And that they're supposed to look a lot like our own innards and all. And then you 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 see like the, when the, the things are decimated, they apparently use like pieces of shellfish. It's just like really raw, gross, grisly sort of, um, uh, Pulpy sort of gore that almost kind of goes back to like George A. Romero in a way, you know, that that there's it just feels like it's actually there. Um, But then also there's this sort of like weird dump truck uh, (laughs) aesthetic of just commingling together like all these random.
0: But it's also all the things we tend to fear in the abstract. endless tentacles grabbing at you, mouths within mouths trying to devour. Um, uh, The face hugger is basically just an assemblage of, as you said, innards and claws. It's everything tactile that physically repulses us about something made manifest. And that pile of things that scares you is coming to murder you now. (laughs) Yeah,
2: Like, I always used to think, like, I don't know if the if the xenomorph attacks me, I'm like more like grossed out just feeling that weird KY head as I'm trying to get him, <laughs> getting, you know, him or her off of me uh, than actually just being like, you know, my brain's pummeled out by his little like jaw thing. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, and I think too, you know, we've sort of alluded to the other alien movies, and I feel like you have to bring that up at least briefly in this mm-hmm. context because not only is the arm of influence incredibly long, but it begat three direct sequels, um, two terrible spin off movies, <laughs> and two, well, I would say two in counting prequels, but now that Disney owns this, maybe we're just going to reset it again, or who knows. Um so I'll I'll just close at this point. I'm not a huge fan of Prometheus or the new takes on it. I think there is merit there. I also think that if we're talking about Alien as a masterpiece of showing and not telling, exactly. Prometheus is basically the polar opposite of that. But I think if anything, it's the shitty Alien versus Predator sequels <laughs> that best get to why a lot of people fundamentally misunderstood the appeal of this movie.
1: I he, think. Oh, go, go ahead. I was going to say that goes right back to Aliens.
2: Though. Yes, exactly. And
1: look, I, Aliens was my favorite when I was a kid, and then I came back around. and said, no, Alien, Aliens is kind. I like. We put it on at the bar, and I'm still compelled by it. But it's kind of an ugly movie, yeah. in the way that Alien is. But it's not. It doesn't. It, it doesn't have that value.
2: No, for and, me. Uh, I've, this is what I've kind of contended with later on in life. Is that I, I too was like, I loved Aliens growing up. I love the, hero, the heroism of it. I love, I'm a huge Michael Bean. Um, great, another great cast, another great ensemble. Amazing cast. And James Cameron's script is awesome. The music by James Horner is great. It's all awesome. But it literally is the antecedent to Alien. It's 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 pulpy. It's action. It's big. It's brass. Like even the score. It's like ding 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 ding. ding. In a like, lot of it's ways, it's exactly
0: the B movie that Scott and everyone involved went out of Star their beasts. way to not make. Exactly. Yeah, it,
2: it's much closer to Star beasts yeah. and Spirit and. Honestly, it was the more successful of the time because it became the film that everyone knew. It was the mainstream breakthrough that was like, you know, if, if Alien was the rental that kids grew up on, Aliens is the one that they went to the theater and they they wanted to to recreate on the playgrounds again and again. And it didn't help that it was aided by you know an incredible toy line in the early nineties, um, but which was supposed to be for an animated series yeah. that never uh, I don't think it ever got past a no. pilot stage. No, and, and I and believe they it was
1: deemed too. Uh, I think it was actually deemed too violent,
2: which would probably make sense, you yeah. know, especially if you go back and watch the you know the original movie. But I think in the aftermath of that, that's probably why you know audiences truly hated Alien Three because it was actually more in line with Ridley Scott in in, in focusing more on dread than action.
1: People wanted Aliens too, yeah.
2: yeah. And you know, it, but on the other hand, like yet
1: yeah, what you're to your point about it's the the B movie that Aliens Alien wasn't that might also be why it works, because yeah. they said, let's not just do the same thing over again, which even in modern filmmaking, sequels tend to be sometimes a remake of the original movie. Like, I love Beverly Hills Cop 2, but Beverly Hills Cop 2 and Ghostbusters 2 are two examples where if you put that side by side with the original movie, it's beat for beat a remake.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, and you still see that tendency sometimes to this day. I mean... The Hangover movies don't have the cultural cachet they did a decade ago, <laughs> certainly. But that's another infamous example of a movie cravenly remaking itself yeah. to cash in. Well,
2: and that's why I loved uh, Alien Three and I hated Alien Resurrection so much. Is because to your point, I don't like, like Resurrection it, either. It goes, it goes into it, it's basically if you look at the original Alien trilogy, it is the polar opposite of the Star Wars trilogy. You have the 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 uplifting second chapter in the Aliens you <laughs> know trilogy, and then you have the downer of one in the Star Wars trilogy. And so basically, like, Aliens is the return of the Jedi, whereas, like, Empire Strikes Back is totally, like, Alien 3, I you know? S- and
1: I still, I think Alien 3 has the best ending. Oh, I agree. With her jumping into the fire yeah. with the, the chest burst. It's, it, 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 it's so ballsy. It's, like, and they, <laughs> it, yeah. And the ballsy that they had Sigourney Weaver shave her head for the role, mm-hmm. and then you completely throw that all away with part four. Yeah
2: only only four years later, five, year, five four or five years later, which doesn't like I'm mean, as a kid that seemed like such a long time, yeah. but in hindsight, while well, writing about it, especially when these anniversaries come, and you're like, holy yes. fuck, like it's, that was that
1: close. It, when you think about like Alien coming out in '86 and Alien Three coming out in '91, yeah, '92, like it seems like it seems like a long time then. Yeah, same thing it was like, oh, that was only you know, but if you look at where culture, how culture had changed between 86 and 91. Well, I was going to say, you want to know how I know that Alien
0: 3 came out in 1992? Because on the poster, it hits you with the three times the action, three times the scares. (laughs) And there is only one era of Hollywood history where that
1: would ever be done with a straight face. And the original trailer um, is for a different movie, basically. (laughs)
2: Yeah, because they had no idea what the hell they were going to do with this film. And that's honestly one of these days I'd love to have just like an an entire podcast series dedicated to the production of Alien 3 because it's like unreal, like... Just how long that took to get but out of development hell.
1: And the kind of thing of aliens. though, aliens also garnered Sigourney Weaver a an Oscar nomination, yeah. which I always forget, and I'm always kind of shocked and baffled. But ha- I, mean, I think she deserved it absolutely. I
2: mean, that's got to be top right?
0: twenty in the list of most genre movies to ever be up
2: yeah, for absolutely. an Oscar.
1: Absolutely. Well, what, what is?
2: When was there ever a situation where a character coming back from a sequel got nominated? I don't think that I mean. There's Dark Knight with the being a sequel. I mean, Godfather of Part
0: Two is an easy and obvious answer to that, but yeah. it's it's infrequent yeah. for sure.
2: I mean, that's pretty amazing, and, yeah. I, and I, I mean, it's definitely deserved. It just it just is. It, it's it's interesting to note, like the Ripley of Aliens versus the Ripley of Alien, and how they are they do still share so much of the same DNA. But I mean, I think it's more part and parcel, just. representation of Cameron of just being just amazing character teller you know maybe he's great it's It's very very much a James Cameron movie Yeah. yeah
0: but as we keep on discussion of alien I want to kind of steer us over into the technical half of this discussion as we do here at filmography and I definitely want to like comb with a slightly finer point on the visual facets and the audio facets of the film And in coming around, we've already talked a little bit about the visual in particular, but in coming around to that again specifically now, I do just, I want to linger for just a second longer on the Geiger designs Mm -hmm. because another thing I already talked about kind of like the transgressive quality of them. Something else I really love about them is how everything about it just feels so military in a way. Everything about it is deliberate. Every single aspect of its evolution has been built for the specific purpose of killing and procreation. And there's something so horrifying about a monster of that nature.
2: Yeah, It's a very existential design, you know, and, and I think that was something that O'Bannon really loved. Because if you look back at the genesis of this film, the, the real seed for him was the, I think he had Crohn's disease, or something that there was just there's something to do with like his like his stomach hurting, and he said that there was the most pain he ever felt in his life, and he had the idea that that's how it would burst out of the chest. But even before that, he thought, well, they had to kind of wrestle with the idea of how do they get the alien on the ship, and he said, well, they're going to have him. He's going to fuck it. Uh, you know, the alien was going to fuck the <laughs> thing. And he's going to impregnate whoever is, you know, the the first victim, and that to them, you know, uh, was the conceit of the movie, and I think. Pairing that concept with Geiger's sort of evolutionary design is definitely one of the reasons why people are still haunted by this. Like, multiple generations that have since removed from it. It
1: touches on primal fears, Mm -hmm. I think.
0: Yeah, you just... It's the idea of the evil that you can't kill, you can't stop, you can't reason with it, which I think is another thing. There, There is no outsmarting this thing. There is no reasoning this thing. The only time it is outsmarted is at the very end, and it's not like she outsmarts it and kills it. No. She outsmarts
1: it enough to get it off the ship. Yeah. And that's pretty much the case, because it probably never died. Like, that alien's probably still floating around out there. I don't <laughs> think they need oxygen, right?
2: No, and that's like the other thing is that you never really know the rules Von for saying this from, <laughs> <laughs> she just like lands down into the desert, and he's just like, "What is this?" Um, I, I, uh, I, one of the things that's also kind of creepy about this is that at this point in the series, especially depending on what director's cut or whatever cut you see, there aren't really any set rules yet for this uh, particular design. And that's still really eerie because you're ju- you're as much in the darkness as every other character in this movie. And that's not necessarily the case with the sequels because by Aliens, they really did kind of set design roles for everything. And um, in hindsight, they really lucked out that they didn't have the whole Dallas cocoon sequence because that really just throws everything into a fucking <laughs> mix because it makes no sense whatsoever. But what's really terrifying about this initial one is that, yeah, the, the sense of discovery. And when you see that with the evolution and you really have no idea what's going to come next. Well, and it's a marvel of practical
0: effects yeah. as well, because that's another thing worth mentioning, especially if we're going to talk about the human adjacent presence of the xenomorph, it was a dude in a costume. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, granted it was a lot of puppetry and effects work in tandem with that, of course, but
1: there is like a body somewhere in there. And to that point, um, that's something that, and not to sound like the old man complaining about computer-generated special effects, but when they create monsters that aren't, you know, guys in suits or puppets, they don't move right because no. they, they can do whatever they want. And yes, maybe it's supernatural, so it doesn't need to be follow all the rules of gravity or you know. But when something is human and looks tangible, it's more terrifying. Yeah, it's more effective.
2: Yeah, and honestly, this they went all out on trying to be as practical as possible. I mean, here are some of the things that they even had just in the body, the design. There was um, plasticine. Uh, There's vertebrae from snakes, cooling tubes from the Rolls Royce. Um, the head itself had 900 moving parts. I mean, this is like Jim Henson on like acid or something. <laughs> I mean, this is just so fucked. And like, yeah, and like, as you mentioned, Mike, the the human skull thing is really just chilling because I always think of it as the the, the sort of band toy that came oh, out around no, yeah. time. 19th.
1: Uh, that was <laughs> out, It was like what?
2: There's a giant toy that, and you really do see the skull
1: on it because yes, I mean, that was the first place I probably noticed was seeing pictures of that because yeah. I never had that.
2: I was, I was, it I was, was off of shelves. The, f- oh yeah, fast. it was gone. Yeah, they're like, uh we'll keep Star Wars up, but this has got to go. But, so
0: now I'm curious because y'all are both a lot more up on like antiquated <laughs> toy culture than I am. What was this like specifically?
2: It was a, just this giant Xenomorph toy. It was about. How tall was it? It was about a little bit, maybe twelve inches, like a yeah. doll. It was like a yeah. doll for the most part, like a, bigger than a Barbie for sure. There's a com- there's a good commercial
1: on YouTube that you can.
2: It's you just can hilarious. Yeah. It's, it's just such a weird gift that you know. It, it pretty much almost started the trend that it would carry over in the '80s of taking R-rated, you know, titles. And making it aimed for kids. Well, like, if you go back to NES, there are games that are made that should not be made oh, sure. and aimed for, like, 10- or 12-year-olds. Well, kids,
1: Kenner so. made the Xenomorph doll. It ended up yeah. getting pulled off shelves, I believe, because it was scaring kids yeah, or something. Totally. But they had a whole line planned of, um, you know, Kenner-sized, Star wars size action figures yeah. that never got made. Uh, but about, I want to say about 10 years ago, uh, the people who do... Like, oh, Reaction F- and Reaction, they finally made them. They made them. Which are and they look amazing. They're, they're they're pretty cool. I would have had. I probably would have had them at some point. In the
2: yeah, 80s. yeah. Because I, I and I love like the the sort of plastic they use. But I, again, like the, the the reason why I bring up the toy is because the toy itself really does show the design and the, the the sort of tangibility of it all. Like you really do see those parts in play.
0: And that's actually really interesting because then jumping back to the film itself. Scott obscures the xenomorph yes. for the vast, vast majority of the yeah. runtime. I mean, the the analog here when the movie obscures its monster is usually Jaws, but this waits until much later in the film than Jaws ultimately does. At roughly the same runtime to show you the
1: creature in full, and I believe it's constant. It's never the same no. when you see it through those first moments before it's fully evolved, which is probably the first time. What you see it in the duct, right? Mm-hmm. That's the first time, and even then, it's. It's a great shot, but it's not. It's quick. And they're gasps.
2: And exactly. And like even towards the end, when you do actually see it, it's they're so fast. Because remember, like we're not going to. People aren't going to be able to go home and go YouTube this stuff. It's all in their heads. So you really do get like flashes of things, and you get you know they linger on parts like the head when it's in the pipes in the end and all. But for the most part, yeah, they're, they're gasps on it. And even when you know like Brent is looking up at the the rafters and stuff like that there's just well and so much of that
0: comes from too from the photography um, from Derek Van Lint who shot the film mm-hmm. he and Scott use that darkness that we discussed earlier in the show to really incredible effect in the context of the xenomorph in particular because I will say as far as modern computer animation effects go one of my biggest pet peeves is when you have a cool looking creature design and you completely hide it in darkness because you did have the budget to actually let people look at the thing head on.
1: That's I'm nervous about the new Godzilla movie because all the trailers seem to be covered in, in rain and, yeah. and smog and stuff, which I understand <laughs> is also effective. Sometimes that works, but sometimes, yeah, you're just covering up uh, design. Like uh, Rick Baker said about... Um, the film Octaman. You ever seen Octaman? Not seen Octoman. No. Octaman, but octaman has <laughs> been in Gremlins too. Yeah. It's in Fright Night, and he designed the Octaman because they were. T- he was told, "Well, we're just gonna. It's gonna be hidden in shadows through most of the movie, and then the whole movie's shot in daylight." I think. <laughs> oh, and he, he said he learned a lesson: like never half-ass yeah. your your monster design.
2: And you really don't hear. I mean, even in when you do. I mean, even if this wasn't, you know, masked in the the darkness, I think it would still be effective and chilling. I mean, I had mentioned off of the air, uh, the air, you know, off recording that uh, if you'd ever play the alien isolation game and what's really haunting about that is that it's all modeled off of the first movie, Ridley Scott's film, but you see uh, through the eyes of, of, of um, you know the, the leads, and you get to see the aliens stalk and, and, and climb and walk around, and it's so chilling because it's so large and it's so uninviting, and it just like pierces the whatever reality you're in because you're like that shouldn't exist. It's it, it's like almost like proportionally inaccurate, and that sort of anachronism of of body proportionality is just. Really unnerving.
0: Well, and I think something that the film does really smartly, especially in those early images letting you pass through the ship, it. Gives you such a sense of spatial continuity, which I think is something else really incredible about the set design and the whole just the way the ship itself is shot throughout the film. You always have a rough idea of where you are, Mm -hmm. where other things are in relation to you. And that's why when the one thing that conspicuously doesn't belong there rears its (laughs) head again, it's all the more horrifying because, again, returning to this notion of violation of space This thing being anywhere in a ship that otherwise makes coherent sense to you, there's a horror in that.
2: Well, it's almost like every set piece is designed with the idea of what would hell look like on Earth or in space? I mean, look at even some of the weird just choices they have for some of the areas of the ship. I always (laughs) think of the chains that are just hanging there <laughs> with rainwater coming down. I mean, like, what? It's just so bizarre. And I, I I need to, like, actually spend some more time reading some alien wiki pages and stuff to see if anyone had, you know, some poor fan... S- somebody th- made the theory. Explain it, explained yeah. It. <laughs> like they always do with, like, the
1: Star Wars films Oh, I love... That's what I love. Yeah, that's how I found out Rigi's was a job at Hutt's accountant.
2: <laughs> and somebody had to create that sort of backstory yeah. with it. So I'd love to know what these chains are supposed to represent. Like, I know that the there was originally a scene where he was supposed to look up and there's this, there, there is a giant, like he's supposed to be like hanging there, like the aliens just hanging there, like almost like, um, like a spider of sorts. But there's just a lot of weird quirky designs that are even more chilling than the Xenomorph itself. It, it, well, it, and I think it's
1: all goes hand in hand where it is a blending of organic with, you know, concrete and metal, like yeah. with steel, like, and the alien itself, as you said, with the, he has parts of a Rolls Royce on there yeah. and, and snake bones. Yeah and Which it doesn't make any sense but pr- well, it must be the
2: point maybe there's a thematic connection to the idea that the the humans themselves are as disposable as you know the the junkyard waste the the corporations entities itself there's a sort of marriage between human to the flesh and to the, the corporate entities and stuff, you know, maybe I'm reaching corporations are people. Yeah, first exactly. of all,
0: what you're describing is basically the third act of Videodrome, yes. at least <laughs> in the abstract. But like, I, I know, I do think there's something there in the way that, especially when a lot of people get killed in this movie, especially after the chestburster sequence itself, A lot of it is cut away very quickly. You don't watch most of the people die on screen. And there's then this sense of just like ruthless brute efficiency dragging them all to their fate.
2: Yeah, because really, what are the most grotesque scenes? Like it's it's Cain and then Ash. For the most part, right? I mean, I can't I mean and only one of them is, is
0: ultimately a person, not yeah, to like yeah. dehumanize humanoid androids or whatever yeah, right. have you. They're people as well. I Especially was when, when
2: Bishop comes along.
0: When the, <laughs> when the robots come, I want to be on the right side <laughs> of history, you know.
2: <laughs> yeah, they stop by and like, "Uh, we actually heard that miniography oh, yeah. episode <laughs> that they I am.
1: So, uh, uh, we heard you, you were talk.
0: talking shit."
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, how about I whoop your ass like a person? How does that?
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> or I have a question. When you saw aliens and Bishop gets ripped apart, how like uh, how, how much more terrorized were you of that than like anything else that was going on in that scene <laughs> as a kid? For me, I could not handle the fact that this innocent android was ripped in half. Like there, there was something that was so, um, just so terrible about that. And then the fact that he was like, oh, like when he's being like flown away by the, you know, sucked with the air. And I just thought that's such an interesting 180 from how you feel about Ash in this, where all you want Ripley to do is just smash Ian Holmes' head as soon as possible. Um, and yet at the same time,
0: Ash's whole brief conversation with them gets back to that point we discussed about like the horror of half-lucidly realizing that humanity is being left outmoded, yeah. out-evolved, essentially. He's promising a future well beyond what the end of this movie is going to show you. And then, you know, 20, 30 years later, there will be two belabored treatises on those <laughs> yes. points. Oh but God, we yes. get there later. In this moment, he's just telling you what's going to happen to them. And then the fact that they disable him doesn't give
1: you comfort from that no, or distance from he's it. He's
2: just doing his job. Yeah. I
1: mean, the real villains are the company back mm. home.
2: Which is even even in this film where you never even see them or you never really get the name so so to speak or even their directive orders. I mean, because obviously with aliens you get a uh, mad about you is Paul Reiser or should I say bye bye loves Paul Reiser. He's uh, so good. Or diners Paul
1: Reiser. He's so good. Love in him in it,
2: but he's you know he gets to be this corporate face, but you don't really see that so much here. Other than maybe I guess Ash, but even then you're right. He is just doing his he's job. He's just doing a job, and he's not a he's not a human. No, no. And what's really creepy is again and and. and <laughs> To get nerd out with the isolation game, but there's a um, there's a mode that you can download, or and the, there's an Astromo edition where you could actually replay some of the events yeah. of the first film, and it's inevitable that Ash is going to win because he's uh, no matter like what you try to do because his way is pretty much kind of the way it should be in a, in a way I guess they're trying to insist on, which is really eerie in a sense. Cause if you think about it, like it would make sense for nobody to, to come back to earth. Um, if you're looking at it mathematically, just like, no, this is.
0: Yeah. I mean, if his prime directive was to bring a species home, yeah. humanity is not a concern in that scenario.
2: Yeah.
1: But <laughs> that's where I think I learned what the term expendable. Yes. were <laughs> the alien films, uh, yeah. That's really unsettling, actually. (laughs) That brings
0: us way back around to the working class, I suppose. But before we move on from the visual facets, we have the lasting image. And in a movie like Alien, there is no shortage of them to land on. So many. Um, For me, it's the beginning of the film the opening of the hyperbaric chambers because it kind of collapses out like a flower another example of the mechanical going beautiful going naturalist like a perversion to naturalism and you just get this image of each of these people laid out like they're on a buffet platter yeah
2: but then what would be my own last image on that? is quickly after that where you see the humanity of it all. And it, it's, you know, regardless of how far we've evolved and how f- removed we are from Earth, there is still a society here and there is still, you know, humanity at play and at large. And I, so I love that juxtaposition um, and f- because for me, like I said before and earlier in this episode, is that it, there's just, it's confounding at how much you get from so little in it. And so for me, that's always just going to be the, some, what I remember from this movie for sure. I'm, I have to go with, uh, the space jockey. Oh yeah. Because
1: oh. the more, I, the more I thought about that, like when I first saw it, when I was a kid, like they never explain it. Mm-hmm. They never say that, what that was. I mean, they, they get into it in Prometheus, right? I actually haven't seen
2: Prometheus. It's, not good.
1: I've uh, so. here. I've got it. I have it at home, but like I, I haven't ever been really jazzed with it. But as far as the space jockey in the first film, like that the image of this giant thing You're in like, this what, what the fuck looks that? like he's in uh like a cockpit. Yeah. And then you see the scale of that to the three actors, like that image always stuck with me because and, it's so in a film full of kind of bizarre, odd things, it might be the most
2: bizarre. I and mean, that's what I've always loved about this era of filmmaking. I mean, like, that's like bring up Star Wars again, but
1: <laughs> think about when they're watching. Dis- you, can't, you, can't. you can't disconnect it because this movie was probably got greenlit it, because it Star legitimately Wars. did.
0: Yeah. 20th century Fox, I believe it was Walter Hill who joked that like Fox wanted a sci-fi movie after Star Wars, and this was the only one they had on their yeah. podcast. Pile Which at is the hilarious. Time. Yeah. And,
2: but what you look back at Star Wars, think about all the things that are just out there in the, you know, in the. And the, You know, in the peripheral, like when they're in Tatooine, like those the skeleton bones that are just like, what the fuck are those creatures? Well, this is that. because
0: this is back in a time in filmmaking where you were allowed to leave teases to the peripheries of a world that an audience could then be excited about. It's not mm-hmm. like about it's not like now where we're having loud internet arguments about like which Game of Thrones thing from season three Wasn't paid off by the end of the series because instead of making Comic Book Guy a character on The Simpsons, he's everywhere all the time now. Oh yeah! But with Alien, you do get those peripheral looks at a world that the movie
1: has no intention of returning to. Never. There's Mm -hmm. it's just weird and it's there. Mm -hmm. They don't even really. Geiger, go make something. (laughs) Here's some here's some bones and shit.
2: How about this large thing? I will say that here's which, some bones and shit makes something that looks like a penis. I guess it does. It's like has this like weird like elephantine sort of face with like a phallic. It's so it's so cool fucking and weird. odd. Yeah. I will say so. I didn't realize this until I did research on this, but that was supposed to be an homage to Planet of the Vampires. Um, and there's a scene in that movie where the heroes discover some giant alien skeleton. So I need to see that scene because uh, that's. The, the idea of like giantism, like like you're a giant figures, and just the, the the sort of like merciless nature of something so large that you just are so unaffected. It's like unaffected to them. Well, it's isn't really that scary. a very
0: two thousand one notion? That's yeah. the monolith oh, right absolutely. there.
2: You know, or even just the idea, of space, the infinite. Vastness, there's a whole, yeah, there's a whole bunch of galaxies. There's a whole bunch of galaxies out there. There's
1: a whole bunch of weird things, (laughs) and and, you mean nothing. Well, (laughs) and I do (laughs)
0: think that there, and to that point, there another image that pops up is just Kane being essentially given his funeral before everything gets really wild. It's the only time that like someone's death is really belabored in that movie because after that, it's just one after the next. And that vision of him just being ejected out into the vacuum of space, I mean, it's something you saw in Dark Star. It's something that was done in 2001. The idea of the lone human figure in the face of the infinite is something that had been done before. But there's a unique horror to it
2: here. What is more terrifying to you, the infinite vastness of outer space or Deep Sea. Deep Sea. Deep yeah. Sea. No Drou- questions asked.
1: Drowning. Yeah. Gravity. Gr- the movie Gravity. Loved that movie. Thought it was awesome. Even yeah. saw it in 3D. Didn't really scare me, but I was on no. the edge of the seat. The minute that pod landed in the water.
0: <laughs> yeah. mm. Exactly. No, yeah. because, well, I mean, first of all, I've watched, like, enough episodes of Blue Planet about the deepest <laughs> parts of the ocean to know that every fish down there is the scariest fish in the world. <laughs> yeah. But it, there's also just the idea, at least in space, once you're in the void, you're just in the void. Yeah. The idea of water
2: is you just keep sinking and sinking and sinking, and that that that's primal. There, there's a sterility to space that can be either calming or terrifying, depending on the individual. For me, I think there's calming to it. I think there's this. It's like the feeling of being in the desert, where you hey. know I know I'm not going to be you know like I could dehydrate and die, but. Odds are I'm not going to be, you know...
1: You might bump into something, Yeah, find something. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, there's a hope to it, too, that's there. I don't know. Yeah,
0: I get it. Yeah. And, and actually, on the on the point of like the presentation of space as it is here, that's a good transition over into sound as well., Ooh, yes. And there's two things to discuss here. There's Jerry Goldsmith's work on the score. And then there's the sound design itself, which I really want to put an emphasis on because the sound of the xenomorph is a huge chunk of what makes this movie so goddamn frightening.
2: This is at a time when sound design actually fucking matters. When you can just have iconic sounds that are attributed to singular movies, and it's something that I was thinking about while talking to um, Christopher Young—not to name drop and be a star fucker on this <laughs> podcast—but you know, a few weeks ago for the Losers Club, we talked to uh, legendary composer Christopher Young, and you know, I was asking him like you know, why do we not have iconic horror themes anymore? Why don't we have any sort of iconic themes for most movies It anymore? drives me crazy. And it's, it's really infuriating. And he said, basically, it was like, well, most people just want that sort of um, aesthetics blur. They just want to make sure that you get, in, you know, immersed in there. And this film is total evidence that you can have both. And I think that there are swells and sort of aggravated, nightmarish sounds that meld well with, Music that is recurring, that become emblematic of the images that you're seeing. And that's what I love about this movie.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, like with the xenomorph and with especially the sounds of its movement. Yes. That's what gets me in particular, because it's at once a stomp. And it's sort of, kind of a wet sound in a weird way. Yeah. There's just, again, we we've sort of talked about this in a few different contexts about the film now, but there is there's a physicality to it. There is a tactility to it.
2: There is there's a familiarity to it too, and that's important. Yeah. I mean, like think about that's like, why you hear, all the sounds work in Star Wars. Yes, because like, you ben, know when the of Star Wars, like near. Ben Burt,
1: and it's all just him messing around at the house or yeah. recording weird things
2: that he heard or kn- knocking his microphone below behind his TV or something. Yeah. Like and that like, okay, there.
1: this, this, this might sound cool. I'll save this for later. Yeah. And that brings to that, you know, the what do I say? Like the mechanical and the organic mm-hmm. nature of the xenomorph and pretty much everything else in alien.
2: Yeah. Because I mean, even like when you look listen to Jerry Goldsmith's score, like even their, their moments of it, that feel as if they're not scoring the scene, but what's in the scene. And that's like a really distinctive measure to his score that I think, makes it so compelling and effective.
0: Yeah, I would argue his score very much functions in tandem with what's going on, and more than an average score does, because it's a very active piece of the action instead of underscoring the action. Because another thing that Scott does that I think is really great is the way that the ambient ship noise becomes its own kind of soundtrack. There are entirely scoreless sequences where all you can hear, I mean, that image of the room with the hanging Dripping Chains, yep. for instance, the sounds of the drips, the sounds of the chains rattling. That's the only underscore of that sequence as poor Michael Rothman surrogate Harry Dean Stanton is wandering around waiting to be killed.
2: <laughs> well, that's also that's something that Ridley Scott's going to revisit like a couple years later with Blade Runner. I mean, like think about, you know, you look back at Vangelis's score for that film and so much of it is uh, like married to all the different sounds and clicks and bits and pieces that you know are tied to the ships and to the area and the environment around it whether it's the rain or the the sort of sounds the doors make when they're opening and and like again it's it's the familiarity of it is like what really is 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 scary because your mind and your your you absorb this stuff when you're in terror especially especially when you're in terror because think about all the times when you like come home and you think something's upstairs every part of your mind yeah. is ref, is just and it suddenly every,
0: every single sound is far more acute yes. than it ever would be
2: <laughs> yeah and and what's great about the goldsmith score is that it fucking teases with you. Like, I mean I I know that the whole there was a whole story that he because he I, I think he, he did a bunch Star of weir- Trek, right? Didn't he did, didn't he do did he work with Star Trek before Goldsmith? Was, yeah. Yeah
1: like, he did uh, he did uh, Star Trek the motion picture. Okay, so I'm he about had, 90% sure of so that So he
2: had this like sort of like beatific score that like shows the wonders of space. And I think I mean, he brought that idea because he wanted to have it creep up to become creepy and creepy as the movie goes on. And Scott was like, no I don't like that. Like I just I I want it to be weird. Uh, but he still crept in some of those flourishes. He does
1: some weird, I I, God, I wish I could remember, it was, I was It was a making of on a Blu-ray or something when they were talking about the score, and he does some really weird out there stuff with it, but I can't remember
2: what it was. Well, it has this like, a th- th- lot of flutes, there's a lot of strings, but then there's also these like, sort of just like, minimalistic, almost like, th- th- like Getty sort of like, clink clink. clink 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 like it's it's very minimal when it needs to be minimal too
0: well yeah it's a score you could definitely characterize as sparse for the most part outside of a couple of passages yeah and yeah
2: and when it really comes down it feels as if you're like in a pressure chamber
0: yeah and i think like especially like the way it functions Especially when they're on L V four twenty six. Yeah. That entire sequence, the way that it functions to like it's almost just poking you in the back of the neck a little harder each time as they're wandering in. It's again, it it, it sets this mood that you have transcended humanity, yeah. that wherever you are now is not somewhere you are supposed to be.
2: And honestly, that is a scene that I would used to show why we have to see movies sometimes in theaters, because the scope of that scene cannot be recreated in any like, like home, like video thing. Like you need to have that sort of feeling of being in a wide empty room, just like they are in that scene. And I'm not trying to sit here and be fucking Spielberg to Alfonso. (laughs) No, but it's the truth. I've I've, I've seen,
0: I've seen this in a theater and I've seen this in my house and I've seen it on a computer And you're absolutely right. It's a stillness all around. A film built not only for that visual stillness, but for that cacophonous silence around you. To be in a huge room with very little sound,
2: Mm -hmm. because in space, no one can hear you scream.
0: I am furious that that could be the end of the show. And I think it's going to be. And I am upset with you. I am incensed at the conclusion of this recording. Let it be known. But before we move on from Alien, because I, I can't let
1: you win, um, do either of you have any closing thoughts you'd like to impart on the film? It's one of my favorite horror movies of all time. And, yeah, I think it has a last. It has definitely had a lasting impact on science fiction. But like when I think of it, I think of it as a horror movie.
2: I think it's one of the most rewatchable movies of all time. I, I just, I, I love it for everything that it accomplishes from an aesthetic standpoint, from a narrative standpoint, from, I mean, God, just what it does for a I think it of ate, I think it
1: ages well too. Yeah. Like why, like it gets better every time I watch it. Yeah,
2: I agree. I mean, cause you always find something else and that's one of my favorite parts of any movie. And, It's also just, like I mentioned before, it really did kind of establish its own genre. And honestly, the only movie I could think that could even come close to rivaling this and maybe does on a certain day for me is John Carpenter's The Thing. And that's the only imitator, quote unquote, imitator of this that I could even kind of argue for. Not
1: to get too far down the rabbit hole on this, but like, is this one of the first like horror sci-fi films of that era they kind of split the difference between both genres. I mean, like Obannon fully admitted that he stole from the original thing in Otherworld. And yeah. like if you ever watch It The Terror from Beyond Space from fifty eight, the aliens fingerprints are it's all over, over it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that the thing But they're more kind of still more
1: sci fi they they still feel more sci fi.
2: Totally. There, it's there's a B movie quality to it that this yeah. doesn't have. There's like an R C element to it. And it is
1: very it is is very artistic. Yeah. Like
2: because especially for, a, for a major
1: for a, a major studio release in '79, yeah,
2: you know. Well, if we look at this as like an an epic her space film, its development and production history is almost like the Big Bang. Like when you really think about it, it started out with the genesis of ideas that came from all these different areas, and once it exploded it kind of caught on. It's kind of latching on to other things like Jodorowsky's Dune and, you know, Walter Hill coming in, Sigourney Weaver coming out and bringing over, you know, was this her, much more?
1: was this her first role? She was a big was her Broadway. First leading part. Yeah. yeah. Cause I, I always me-
0: meant to look it up. Cause it's like, this is the first time I ever remember. She's billed yeah. under Tom Skerritt at this point. <laughs> well,
2: and what's crazy is that so Skerritt initially declined and then came back when they actually had a bigger budget. And I guess Ridley was attached. He said, it. I'm
1: not doing the star movie. movie. Yeah, I'm going to go do cheese and Chong.
2: Um, but, um, he and then Weaver was the last person cast, which is which is
1: wild. Yeah, is that crazy? She does carry that movie. Too. Oh, totally. she's so she's so good at it.
2: Yeah, I mean, could you imagine how shocking it must have been when? It, I mean, here's a good question based on this that I was just going to lead to: Is this the first movie where the leading the quote unquote leading star is killed early on? Like the executive decision with like Steven Seagal. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, the, not to spoiler all these, these <laughs> classic movies, but like Scarret dies early well, on. That must have just been insane for people to see that. Psycho, yes? Oh, yeah, that's true. I know. Yeah. It, yeah. It, but like, it's probably cribbing on that, right? Yeah yeah.
1: yeah,
0: yeah. Well, and it led. We've we've invoked this in a couple different spec- respects in our conversation here tonight. It created an entire subgenre of space horror. Yeah. Oh, the alien
1: exploitation is probably one of my favorite of the subs of the exploitation subgenres. Yeah. We'll like, come recommendations uh, because next Tuesday to celebrate the 40th anniversary at Cigars and Stripes in Berwyn, I'll be hosting a. Alien Exploitation double feature of Galaxy of Terror, originally released as Mind Warped, Mind Warp, which features <laughs> Robert Englund, uh, Sid Haig, uh, Aaron Moran, Ch- uh, Chachi, or no, oh, wow. Joni, Joanie from Happy yeah. Days. Um, pretty bleak, pretty weird flick. Yeah. And then Forbidden World, which is a little bit more fun, but I believe uses all the same sets because it's a Corman Production.
2: I, I, Corman, I need to like go really deep into. I mean, I There's so
1: much. Do. It's hard to do. It's, a, it's, a it's hard to it's do. But lot. those two are good. Uh, those are two prime examples of uh, alien exploitation, right up there with creature with Klaus Kinski.
2: Because that's the thing. It's like, I feel like if you're going to do the, you know, the alien thing, you either go the hive row route, which is really proven to be difficult, or you just go to the balls of the wall fun where you can just totally have a blast. And they've, I feel like, when you go to the underbelly of it is where most people have been successful, and I don't know if anyone has been able to eclipse Alien. I really just don't.
1: Shit, Ridley Scott couldn't even do it. He couldn't, no.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well... On that note, I think we're going to bring it home because, no, Ridley Scott could not do it. <laughs> Maybe he should have had Tony do it, R.I.P. Oof, oh,
1: yeah.
0: R.I.P., Tony. And honestly, I would have watched the shit oh, out of a yeah. Tony Scott alien movie. Are Especially you kidding
1: you me? It? it would have been all orange and
0: sweaty. It would have been <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Yeah. In any case, thank you both so much for joining me this week. Thanks to everyone at home for listening, as always. Thanks to Cat Blackard for all those continued support at Consequence Podcast Network. You can stay tuned to our Facebook page, slash Filmography Podcast, for all upcoming pertinent announcements. Those announcements, among other things, will include our June mini-sode. Uh, we're going to have another single film episode for you next month we'll be announcing that sooner rather than later following the release of the one you've just finished listening to now so stay tuned for information on that front you can also again leave us a review on spotify on apple podcasts or wherever else you get your podcast content We are also not the only Consequence Podcast Network show you can enjoy. Among others, you can also check out The Opus, This Must Be The Gig, Kyle Meredith With, The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast, and Halloweenies, which is currently in its Nightmare on Elm Street season. Thank you for that. (laughs) You can find me... On Twitter at D Suzanne Mayer. You can find all of my stuff over at Consequences Sound Otherwise. And I also do a little bit of food writing now over at The Takeout. Where can the goodly people of the internet find the two of you?
1: Uh, Daily Grindhouse. Dailygrindhouse.com. Facebook, Twitter. Mike Vanderbilt on Twitter. Yeah. Pretty easy to track down.
2: Love Daily Grindhouse. <laughs> Thanks. You guys are everywhere in Chicago. I Every time I go to like a <laughs> film. Some sort of film festival, some horror festival. John, I'm always seeing your pins everywhere. And in fact, I actually because we let
1: anybody, we let anybody
2: in. <laughs> I love it. I love it though. Well, you could find me at Consequences Sound um, and uh, on probably 30 different podcasts <laughs> per month because uh, I never leave the studio. I'm just welded to. This microphone, like a Geiger creation.
0: <laughs> yeah, we've actually, like, and the whole time we've been recording this episode, I've just watched uh, Michael Rothman become an abomination of God in his yeah. chair.
2: Kill me. <laughs> Kill me. <laughs>
0: Filmography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. You can check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television content at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded, produced, and engineered in Chicago, Illinois, by me, Dominic Suzanne Mayer, and we will see you all next month.